All right. Are we ready? Are we buckled up? Oh, wait. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will not fall out of my chair this morning. That's good. I would hate to have that happen on the air. Again. Again, right. It has happened before. <laughs> I'm just saying. It was Josh, just to be clear. <laughs> Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. Does your application need to send emails? Did you know that 20% of all email doesn't even get delivered to the inbox? SendGrid can help you get your message delivered every time. Go to rubyrogues.com slash sendgrid, sign up for free, and tell them thanks. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit c a c h e f l y dot com to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one forty nine of the Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm James Gray, and I'll be your host since Chuck is out today. With me, as always, are Avdi Grim. Good morning, afternoon, something. Josh Sasser. Uh, good day from sunny San Francisco. And today we also have special guest Sarah Allen. Hello, also from sunny San Francisco. Hey, neighbor. Hi. <laughs> Usually we have multiple people from Utah. Today it's multiple people from California, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, well, hey, thanks for joining us on the show, Sarah. It's really great to be here. Absolutely. I'm going to have you introduce yourself in just a second, Sarah, because we'll get into what you do and stuff as we start to talk. Before we do that, though, uh, we do have an announcement. We've covered this on Parlay, but we haven't mentioned it on the air before. We talked in the past about doing a Ruby Best Practice Patterns project, and we've actually been working on that uh, for a while and, and trying to get a contract settled with the publisher and things like that. Unfortunately, that project has not worked out, and we've decided to abandon it because it was chewing time and resources trying to set it up, and we were not finding something that everyone was comfortable with, so... Uh, but that's okay. We're doing other projects and interesting things. I just did the first Ruby quiz study group on a Google Hangout, and we recorded that and did all that, and we have more experiments coming. So we're, it's a little sad that the project's ending, but we're redirecting that energy to other places, and we just thought we wanted to let everybody know that. And with the business out of the way, let's get to the show. Sarah, now tell us who you are. I have been a software developer for a little over 20 years. Before I entered the Ruby community, I was most famous for having developed After Effects, Shockwave, and Flash Video. However, the in the open source world, those technologies aren't so favored, but it is delightful that we can now do multimedia in the browser, so we can apply all of this open source goodness to what used to be called multimedia and is now just called application development. About six years ago, I started programming in Ruby, and probably well, most well known in this community by doing test first teaching and founding RailsBridge, which in the last year we've done a refactoring. So the non-Rails specific part of RailsBridge is now called Bridge Foundry and has 501c3 status by a fiscal sponsor school factory. And so Bridge Foundry creates bridges that are each unique instances of bridging the technical divide and creating a culture in technology that is open and welcoming to anybody in our population, our wider 
social population, not just the tech community population. So pretty excited about that. That sounds like you extracted a gem from RailsBridge. <laughs> I think we did. So I like the Good refactoring job. analog um, analogies. And then for the last six months, I took a leave of absence from everything I was doing and um, was a presidential innovation fellow, half-time in D.C. And that's what we had you on to talk about today. You um, gave a talk recently that Josh made me aware of about Ruby in government, or the lack thereof. So maybe Ruby isn't in government very much. Yeah, I called it uh, the talk, Why No Ruby in Government. There actually is some Ruby in government, and I mentioned a couple of projects where um, I've seen Ruby used fruitfully. However, I wasn't able to use Ruby, and it wasn't because they said, no, no, Sarah, don't use Ruby But I agreed when I walked into it that I would recommend the best technology for the job. And my biased assumption was that, well, that might likely be Ruby, but I would get my feet on the ground and figure that out. And much to my dismay, I didn't feel that the problem that I was faced with, despite having some technical challenges and requiring some programming, I didn't feel that Ruby was the right solution. And so I talked about that at our local Ruby meetup. That makes us all sad. Does it? Well, <laughs> Does it? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so maybe you can dig into that a bit, Sarah. I mean, like, so, like, what are the, like, why would we assume Ruby would be great for government anyway, right? It's great for everybody, Josh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Ruby does have a lot of things going for it. Like, wh- why aren't those things great for the government? That's a good question. Well, I think one of my assumptions going into it is, so part of the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program is that we're trying to bring agile practices into government. As you all know, that um, there's a lot of government projects where people will, we, the people, pay hundreds of millions of dollars for software that at first blush doesn't look like it ought to cost that much money. Are we talking about healthcare.gov now? That is uh, sadly not unique to our government and that, you know, everything sort of seems to cost in the multi-million dollars, even small projects. And there are some good reasons for things being expensive, you know, when you your initial deployment has to go out to the entire population, right? There does have to be some degree of let's make sure it, you know, we go through some hoops and there's, you know, PII personally identifiable information, concerns, having a bit of process around that makes a lot of sense. However, Todd Park, the CTO of the United States, had this inspiration that, well, maybe we could take some of these relatively new practices. And when I say new, I'm saying, you know, in the last 10 to 20 years, because government moves slowly. And I think as it should, if we're going to be enacting laws and policy that affect our whole population. You don't want to revisit those every six months. You ought to be building things that if the software itself doesn't last 20 years, the concept ought to. So things ought to change slowly when they have such a massive impact. However, he had the inspiration that maybe we could develop prototypes and iterate and our methodologies could learn something from what we're doing commonly in industry these days so that we can come up with the right solution more quickly, get feedback from citizens more quickly, and produce better results for our country. And I thought that this was a good idea and signed up to head into government for six months. I have to admit, I was a little skeptical. 
But I was very inspired by Todd Parker. I was very impressed by what the Round 1 fellows had done the previous year. And I thought, heck, you know, if anybody can do this, I think, you know, Todd Park has the power to influence getting stuff done. And why not me? So if we're doing Agile and we're doing rapid prototyping, Ruby is a really great language for doing software that's malleable enough to be responsive to the needs of its users. So that's one of the reasons that I was biased that, you know, Ruby's a good solution. Does the process of government make something like Agile more complicated just because there's you know, several entities involved and the need to do so much validation and stuff, or, or is that, is that not a big issue? I think laws are the ultimate waterfall. You know, you work for months, if not years, to pass a law, and then it's kind of what you got. You know, and then if the outcome's not what you want, you have to revisit it in a slow process. And so I'm not sure that we should change that. I would love to have a little more validation of our laws that there were getting to the right outcome, but that wasn't my department. But given the way that our democracy works, you are implementing something where a lot of the decisions have already been made. And a well-written law will frame what needs to happen without going into a lot of detail about how. And I think those kinds of laws are the best, you know, place. You know, when we have policy that's just like, okay, veterans should have benefits, you know, then I think that's fertile ground for, okay, let's create some software that's going to get them the benefits that they deserve in an agile method, you know, where they can sign up and, you know, say what they need and get it. And we have hospitals for them to get to and so forth, you know, for at least the, you know, the majority of veterans that are online and connected. So there's a, there's a whole law policy issue. And then there's a, what you spoke about, which is having multiple stakeholders that are not necessarily beholden to each other. So that is a challenge. Um, when it comes to agile, it's much easier working with a small team where you're looking at a representative sample of your customers and a lot of agile in industry. You totally are free to just say, okay, here's a set of customers we're just going to not include because that's going to let us move quickly. We're going to focus, so forth and so on. We can't, you know, in government, we can't be like, oh, these citizens, we're not going to serve. So it's a little more complex, but I think that it, we can still apply these methodologies to the problem. It's just that it's just that much more challenging to get there. Okay. I think you said something that was kind of interesting that is worth digging into a little bit. You talked about Ruby as being like, it sounded like it was a natural choice for doing agile development. You know, you said that Ruby, you know, software written in Ruby is, is malleable. So it's, you know, it's easy to change and adapt. Is there anything else about Ruby that you think makes it, you know, particularly well suited for agile development? Well, I think that it's suitable for development in general. I think I'm contrasting this with my experience. I had done a little PHP before, you know, in my life. I think everybody's exposed to it at some point or another. You know, you need to throw up a simple web form, add onto a WordPress site, you write a little PHP. But you get into actually doing development and it helps. You know, there was a reason that the industry created object-oriented programming, you know, 20 years ago because it does help structure your code and, you know, packaging up your data with your methods, I find to be helpful. And that actually in modern PHP, you can write object-oriented PHP. However, the way that Drupal and WordPress work, 
their kind of heritage, even though you can use the latest version of PHP, you can't easily, you know, at least in my experience, use those features. You're typically writing code with these kind of hooks where you're naming functions. So you have like, you know, your functions have certain names and then they're called at specific times. It kind of looks a lot like our object-oriented programming, but it requires a lot of discipline. If you name something wrong, it just doesn't work. You know, like there's, you just don't have all of these helpers that you have, you know, when you have a, a modern programming language. And that's unfortunate because if you have to do something, you know, even moderately interesting, then, you know, I sort of felt like I was coding in the 80s in the midst of this modern cloud deployment, you know, kind of world. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of a good point there, just that the design naturally leads to, you know, a certain structure of code. So it's not to say that you can't make these nice, complicated object systems in PHP and then just use that little hook to tie it in, but it's just that it's not as natural to do that as it is, you know, when you're programming that and you think, ah, I just need this one other function, so I'll throw it in here and name it something different, and then it doesn't naturally lead to that structure, whereas the way we build Ruby sites and stuff, you know, making objects everywhere does more naturally the way that you typically structure code in Ruby, <laughs> whereas if in a if you're doing a PHP add-on to a content management system, over time your code gets worse, unless you have an enormous amount of discipline and you really have at the beginning before you start coding have a real concept of how this thing is going to be created. And so I think that that is challenging. And plus, there's the whole testing thing. Ruby has great, fabulous support for automated testing and test first development and that is you know slower it's it's less adopted in the php world and it's harder to sort of integrate into those systems yeah. at least from my experience so one of the uh points that uh Jeff Atwood you know coding horror made when he was on the show last year talking about discourse and that project was one of their goals was to make ruby as straightforward to deploy as php and, you know, and his thought was that that's one of the biggest barriers, you know, in the way of adoption of Ruby. And it sounds like that's the kind of thing that could potentially help building, you know, a lot of government sites, too. You use the name Drupal a lot. It sounds like Drupal is something that gets used in government. Uh, well, maybe software. I should just talk about um, my project a little bit. So yes, I was at the Smithsonian Institution which is a amazing place that has 19 museums. It has archives and libraries. It has our national zoo, research institutions. The Smithsonian has just a very small percentage of its collections on exhibit at the museums. Most of those collections, most Americans don't actually know that most of the collections are actually there for research as not just waiting in the warehouse until we feel like displaying them. They're there for us to understand our history and our natural world. So we were brought into the Smithsonian to look at this from an open data perspective and from a kind of digital asset perspective. They've been doing a lot of work. They've been actually working since the 60s to digitize their collections, to create digital records as well as, um, in some cases, digital images of the collection objects. And so they had come up with this idea 
which it turns out, you know, a lot of different organizations who have archival material and specimen records are working on, which is let's use the power of the crowd to create these digital records. Like if once we have an image of something that has writing on it, we can include volunteers who would help annotate this information and provide access to it. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. That that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I'm curious, like, how'd that work out? I mean, did, was that successful? So this was a great project. They had started it before we got there where they had connected their digital asset management system to a Drupal front end. And they had a services-oriented architecture, so they had an API to access these digital assets. And basically, they were flipping on its head the normal process. So normally what happens is there are these physical objects that an archivist or a scientist will used to take in by hand and write notes on card catalogs and cards and so forth, and now are sort of typing in metadata about. And then later they would get around to, okay, we're going to take a photograph of the object or scan the object. So this process inverts that, where the first thing is just creating like kind of a stub record for this thing. Who's the person who, you know, created it or collected it? And that's just a placeholder digital record that has some metadata and basically where to find it in its physical location. And then let's take a photograph of it because you can, there are all of this, these mass scanning technologies where you can photograph things very quickly with very little human labor relative to typing up stuff and then put those photographs you know, in front of people, and then anybody can type in what they see. So that was a lot of what we did. I worked with Jason Shen, who is another presidential innovation fellow, whose specialty was um, really communications and outreach. And what we did was most of our effort was about activating that community and really creating an engaged community and discovering what it was that excited people about doing this activity. So most of our work was in that kind of what in the industry we might call customer development these days or user research. And there were, you know, when we came on board, I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the Smithsonian has as many volunteers as it has employees and contractors. There's 6,000 people who are paid staff at the Smithsonian, 6,000 volunteers. And almost all of those people walk into the buildings in Washington, D.C. or New York or Panama or wherever. And they have a badge and they often work side by side with the employees. They'll, they'll, they're sometimes retired scientists or, you know, they'll, they'll start out as docents and then become curators. And these people are doing the work of fairly senior staff sometimes. And sometimes they're just, you know, giving tours to museum visitors and helping out the kids or, you know, answering the phone. Um, so they do a range of jobs. And for that, they, you know, they have some of the rights of an, you know, the privileges of an employee. They get to go to the events in Washington for free. They get to get discounts at the gift store. And so when we got there, there were a lot of people involved in the project who were, you know, the folks from the museums and archives and libraries who said, well, people are doing work for us. We should be at least giving them discount at the gift store. Like, you know, are we disrespecting them? If we're not giving, it's not that much, but should we go through that effort? And unfortunately, that's a little complicated because they don't have gift certificates at the online gift store. And, you know, that's its own project, right? So we said, well, well, let's find out. Find out what motivates them. Would they be more motivated? Would they feel excited to have a discount? 
And unsurprising to me, but surprising to some of my Smithsonian colleagues, people just love the work, the opportunity of being a part of our nation's history. That, like, people were just in, you know, so privileged, feeling privileged, because they were, quote, touching documents that had been in the, you know, back warehouse. Often they hadn't been really viewed carefully since they were accessioned, is what they call it, brought in and, and, and stored and labeled. And so that kind of discovery where people were like, wow, I'm like reading somebody's, you know, field notebook of when they were in that 60s in South America collecting frogs. And, you know, isn't this interesting that, you know, they, they, we had this like woman scientist who with another woman scientist traveled in South America and they wrote about their, you know, birthday trip to this island. And it just gives you a feeling of how did scientists actually live and work, in, you know, in 1960. And, you know, people found that to be very precious. So that then we were able to create things that would be very rewarding to these people, like, um, you know, Jason put together a webinar where the folks who'd been transcribing a particular set of field notebooks got to meet with the archivist who knew that much more about the related material. Yeah, I love hearing, you know, stories about academic uh, research type organizations and just like listening to you talk about the research process and environment there just like, it sounds like everybody's so excited about what they're doing that's really true and i think that this technology has the opportunity to help us redefine what a museum archive and library is about and that's what's really exciting about this you know taking this agile methodology and user centric design and applying it to these different governmental activities that are typically this, well, there's the citizens, and then there's this very tiny keyhole through which they talk to the government, and then there's all the people behind the government wall. Like, it, it needed to be that way, you know, in the 1800s, when you had to go by horseback to deliver a letter to the government. Like, it doesn't need to be that way anymore. Right. Now you have to drive by car to deliver the letter. <laughs> So that's all just context for the work we're doing is really about citizen engagement, right? And the software is facilitating that. So I arrive in DC, you know, and there's, you know, it's a, you know, six month long civic lesson for me to kind of understand how it is and why it is that our government works that way and what things that I need to do so that I don't break the law. Cause that's, that's another thing, just as a side note that, you know, in industry, it's relatively easy to get fired and relatively hard to break the law. Because, you know, like you're just, you know, like there are lawyers who figured out all that legal stuff and pretty much you just do your job, right? Which is way, like the bounds of the law are way outside your job. In government, the reason you have a job is because somebody passed the law. And so it's really hard to get fired, which is, you know, maybe something we should fix someday. But there are things that you are doing only because the law says you need to do them. So the, it's kind of, you know, like there, there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to learn. Like, don't do this. There's actually a law against that. Um, or you have to do this because the law says you have to do it. So there's a lot of, you know, the big learning curve there. So, you know, in the midst of all this, I also discover that my project is um, Drupal, which implies PHP. And, um, you know, in the interview, I said I would have an open mind. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to spend the next three weeks while I'm learning about, like, government also learning PHP. So let's just uh, clarify there. Is that like handled through the law or 
How is how was that decision made? Right. So PHP is not mandated by law. Thank right, you for yay. that clarification. Okay. 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 So this is not like a legislature passing a law that pi equals three and web programming equals PHP. Exactly. We totally have the flexibility to choose our technology stack according to our legal patterns. But the, you know, the teams, you know, the, the, most of the software at the Smithsonian is written, at least the core software that's leveraged across the whole institution is, um, written in the office of the CIO. And that's typical in government is that you have a CIO, chief information officer, that will sometimes have a team of engineers who writes core services. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just have a CIO who then has different departments working for them, or sometimes they outsource all of their tech. And there's some debate amongst some people. And we, we had some of these discussions like, you know, should our government be writing software? And I mean, I'm of the opinion that we just need people inside government more people inside government who really understand software so that we can write good software. But we can't outsource all of the technical decisions or we won't get the right decisions at the end. That's my opinion. Interesting. So back to how was this decision made to use Drupal? If you think about, so you could go to the site now, which is transcription.si.edu. And at its heart, it's a very simple site. You know, users sign up. There's a bunch of information that they can see about the various projects, about the activity in general. And then the core of it is there's an image that's displayed, there's a, a web form, and they can go and see the next page. So the very first iteration of this is 95% what you'd find in any CMS and 5% or not even 5% of the functionality if you were to write all of this from scratch is custom software that says, okay, we're going to pull this image from our asset management system. Whatever somebody types in this form, we're going to save off to, you know, our collections database. So very, very little code is actually unique and special to this thing. And so on the face of it, starting with the content management system makes a lot of sense. So let's think about what content management system we would choose. The top two content management systems in the world are WordPress and Drupal. Joomla is a close third. Sometimes that's second, depending on who you read, but most people would say that Drupal's number two. So then, you know, then the question is, you know, WordPress or Drupal? In, you know, in this particular example, Drupal has more extensions and more of a community around writing custom code because you're seeing, thinking that, okay, in a few months, maybe six months, maybe three years, we're going to be making things that are more sophisticated. So we want to have something that has, like, it's a little more extensible. It has more plugins that are really functional, that do things that are maybe a little more unique than WordPress. And so that's how they arrived at Drupal. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. So are, are we still talking about the arc of what you're doing at the Smithsonian? No, so I think, um, yeah, I'll finish up that arc. So that's like a really rational first decision, you know, and I, once I sort of learned about how they came to it, you know, that seems to make sense. And so I'm like, okay, so let me just code in PHP and do the extensions that I think are merited here. And so I, you know, I went down that path. And what I found is that as you develop more and more code, then, you know, you get deep into this, you know, so the Drupal world, and then you have this fragility that comes from, okay, you're developing with hooks instead of object-oriented programming, and, you know, the testing infrastructure is a little sort of harder 
to wire in there. Plus there isn't a culture of testing. So that is, you know, that's yet another cell. And then often the extensions are like, I find that when I add a Ruby gem to a project, often the Ruby gems work and play with a bunch of other Ruby gems pretty easily. And I can use it in a bunch of like, they're more general purpose libraries than the stuff I found you know, in Drupal, I mean, although there are PHP libraries, I mean, it's all doable. It's all at the 10,000 foot view. These are all interchangeable, but basically you start narrow, like you, you, you can paint yourself into a corner much easier because these things are, I think, you know, sort of rigidly formalized. Although they may be my PHP skill is not what somebody else would have had. So I give it that. But the key thing that I wanted to talk to the Ruby community about is because there isn't a good choice that competes from a functionality perspective, if not from a community perspective, although I think the community is part of the functionality really, with Drupal and WordPress, like once that decision is made, it's kind of hard to change right? You might later end up with 95% of your site is custom code and 5% of it is a CMS. But at that point, are you going to switch programming languages? Right. That's a really good point, actually. So I wanted to ask, like, why don't we have an excellent CMS that's, that's been around for a couple of years, like more than a few years, right? So mm-hmm. whenever I ask, why isn't there a couple, uh, excellent CMS, there's always a great answer. But it is a different answer every two or three <laughs> So, Sarah, wh- when I was at Pivotal, we had a lot of client projects that were basically, oh, we want to CMS with some extra, fun- like with some custom functionality. And whenever we looked at it, when we really unpacked it, what they really wanted was an application with a little CMS embedded in it. it so it ended up being that latter case that you were talking about. And in Ruby and Rails, it was just, so straightforward to put together those CMS capabilities within the Rails app we were building that using something like a CMS library or engine or package or what, you know, whatever form it was delivered in was actually more work to figure out how to use that thing and then to figure out how to customize it in a way that was compatible with the rest of your application's requirements. It was just like easier to write it ourselves in Rails. So that's what we ended up doing. And it was... I think the right choice in you know all those cases because we got what we wanted and we didn't have to deal with all the overhead of this project that wasn't really designed to serve exactly what we were doing anyway. So that's a good theory. I don't know if I totally agree with it, and and obviously we're all guessing. But what I was thinking is I wonder if the types of communities around, say, PHP and Ruby lead to different outcomes. So, like, I hear what you're saying, that it is easy to put some minor CMS capabilities in a Rails app, and I agree with that, but those capabilities are going to be no-polish, simple things unless you devote a significant amount of energy to it. That that is true, and and the other big downside is that if you're building a lot of web applications that are going to be used by the same population of users you want the CMS stuff to operate the same in all of them. Right. So so building a custom CMS for each for each application at that point is you, you're not getting the benefits of, of uniformity there. Right. And I think one of the advantages of things like Drupal and WordPress is that you have this large list ecosystem 
like Sarah was talking about, of these plugins that do a lot of, that solve a lot of common needs, right? And so you can get really far with, you know, just kind of cherry-picking some stuff that applies to your particular project, and you can stand something on its feet really fast. You know, which in the case of the project Sarah was describing, I think was one of the great initial goals. Let's stand this up and let people start editing data and then see where it goes. The downside of that is kind of, uh, you know, what, what Sarah said is that, you know, as you begin to say, wouldn't it be great if, and you start adding in that more and more custom stuff, then, you know, you're going to reach a point where it flips upside down on the benefits ratio, right? Yeah, and wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to have, because we want to have a C- have CMS functionality out of the box that dictates our choice of language. Setting aside whether Ruby or PHP is better or worse, like, if you want to be programming in Ruby, why must you build all of the CMS functionality from scratch all the time? So I will point out, just because I've worked with it a fair bit, that we do have Radiant, and it's not as new as you might think. It's not this year's answer. I just looked on the page to try to figure out the date. The copyright starts in 2006, and it was used on the Ruby's homepage for a while, and and we've since moved on. So it's been around long enough to serve that purpose and move on. I would argue that Radiant is not like Drupal in in that it it describes itself as a no-fluff CMS, and I I would, uh, you know, say the PHP solutions are kind of the opposite. Lots of fluff, you know, in that you get to flesh things out very quickly, whereas Radiant's more developer-focused, maybe, is the way I would think I would say it. Yeah, and I did use Radiant on a project a few years ago, and I think that it is the, like, mature CMS in the Ruby world. But what one of the questions with Radiant and CMSs that come after it is it doesn't have, we have this dichotomy, right? So I think it, it, you know, part of it is, you know, DHH said, you know, we can build a blog in five minutes. So why would we respect any blogging functionality? You know, like we as a community, I think that we don't respect the challenge of creating user interface objects that can be reused. We want yeah. to always recreate the user interface from scratch and have that be custom, but we don't feel that way about our ORM, right? Our ORM, huh. we want to use out of the box and rely on, but our UI controls, we want to make from scratch all the time. Like, what's up with that? That's a really good point. And again, I think... And I, I admit that I'm totally guessing, but I think it's probably a little to do with the cultures around PHP and the cultures around Ruby. Whereas Ruby, you tend to have, I don't know, I want to say more back-end developer kind of stuff, you know, that... that well, there's more- there's a lot more, there are a lot more hobbyist developers in PHP. You know, there are a lot of people that came in from fiddling a little bit with HTML and then sort of gradually, I think, started fiddling with the PHP. But, you know, is, is, is there a cause and effect there? Like, because they have WordPress, they start with a WordPress site, and then they become PHP developers. That's maybe yeah. You know, whereas we have a lot of hobbyist developers. I talk to a lot of people where Ruby's not their day job. But they're professional developers, they're hobbyist Ruby developers. Right. Yeah. But, you know, like, so I think the question, I mean, culture is eminently malleable. 
Like, is it a good thing? Like, do we not want, do we not care? Like, are we cool with the fact that we, you know, we write all our UI from scratch and we want that to be the way it is? I'm, I'm looking at the list of CMS systems that are listed on in the Ruby toolbox. And like the, the top four are Refinery, Browser CMS, Locomotive, and Radiant. And they're all Rails plugins. And I think that's kind of interesting. You know, Rails engines, I guess, um, they're all built on Rails. And I wonder if that has any effect on, on this too. Just the fact that pretty much the only game in town, if, if you want to do something CMS-y, is to, to use a, something that plugs into Rails that sits on top of Rails. Whereas things like, uh, WordPress and, and Drupal, as far as I know, they're like the framework. You know, they are the framework and then you plug stuff into them. And I'm just thinking about some of the differences in, in, you know, how that shows up, um, in using the app. Like, so I still use WordPress for all my blogging, and I, I have for years. And if I want to try out a new WordPress plugin, the way you do that normally <laughs> is you either upload the zip file with the plugin into WordPress, and then bang, it's installed. Or even more simply, you've got a, a basically like an, an app marketplace almost, like a plugin marketplace built into it these days. And you just you find the plugin that you're looking for, and you say, install this. And, you know, you do that as a user, basically, not necessarily, not necessarily as a developer and bang that, that plugin is installed. And it's just, you know, we would not never even imagine having the framework manage plugins. We would tend to think of, you know, a plugin as being like a gem that, that a developer adds to the gem file and then pushes out a new release. So it's, it's a different way of looking at things. Yeah. That's what I think that's what I was trying to say is that. I think the kind of people that get started with PHP, you know, maybe taking a web page, throwing some PHP code in that page, and then fleshing it out from there, have a less developer-centric approach. And I, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, I mean that in a positive way. Like, like Avdi just said, they're, you know, putting a plugin in WordPress is stupid simple, whereas in Ruby, we'd be like, okay, go in the bundle. Well, and it's a user concern, too, you know? Yeah, yeah, right. It's, it's at a different level, right? Well, yeah, I mean, why if, like, what I want to do is um, make it so that my text boxes have a different, you know, set of UI controls for rich text? I have to get my, like, why do I have to have my developer do that with a redeploy of my software, right? Whereas, you know, you know, within certain bounds, like the developer, you know, the Drupal developers are advising about which plugins they choose, right? But you could just, like, pop in a little different UI decoration with without redeploying your software, which seems like a nice thing, whether you're a developer or not. Yeah, I, I think I... But I think I think it's really interesting what Avidi said is that Rails kind of sets you into a certain dev deploy situation that is different from the way that the PHP CMSs act. And there's no reason that you can't, couldn't create in Ruby a piece of software where you add something dynamically via user interaction. Yeah, Radiant lets you put in snippets and chunks of CSS and stuff. And But even in Radiant, I would say, from my experience using it, which is not extensive and was a while ago, it's still more developer-focused, I think, than, than, you know, PHP's. Yeah, that was my experience as well. Question, you know, why doesn't one of these solutions come out of uh, the Ruby world and get built up? I took... Amy Hoy's 30 by 500 class a long time ago. And actually, she had this one uh, lesson where 
Uh, she's teaching you how to vet ideas, basically. And um, she had these certain ideas that she said are non-starters. The idea itself is flawed, and that you should never try to use it as a basis for a business, I should clarify. Not that there's something wrong with these ideas, but that these ideas are bad ideas for a business. And I remember on that list is ACMS. <laughs> so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that CMSs are predominantly, you know, they're not businesses. I mean, just like a lot of open source software, like we as communities of developers, we create open source software largely so that we don't have to keep rewriting the same code and we can focus on stuff that's more interesting. Right. And, you know, it's great when there are open source options and you can be like, okay, I can focus on inventing something or doing something like that is actually intellectually challenging and I can just snap in something, you know, I don't need to write it one more time. I like what you said earlier about the, the value of being able to reuse user interface components. Like, why do we feel the need to develop those every time? And that is a very Ruby thing, I think, that, you know, need to that. And I like what you said about, you know, how... If you can write a blog in five minutes, then, well, that's not hard, you know. But that's also, you know, so misleading. Like, I have been rewriting my blog uh, lately, and uh, I've been tracking my progress, and I've spent about ten weeks of free time on it, so not massive amounts of time, but uh, free time on it, you know. And, and it is a, a big project and things like, you know, let users log in through Twitter or GitHub or do Atom feeds or do spam detection and all that. Yeah, I mean, and I would love to see an ecosystem of Ruby things that extend to the UI rather than having, what I think we have is this huge divide between, like, there's stuff you do in Ruby and then everything else is in the JavaScript world. And, you know, there aren't as widely accepted patterns for, you know, sort of Ruby stuff that goes towards the UI. I don't know, maybe you guys, maybe I'm missing something. <laughs> There's no clear winner there. <laughs> yeah. Sarah, I want to change the direction just a little bit, because I want to ask about the non-technical part of the job more. And, okay. uh, and the process and, the uh, you know, working with government, I think, can be really shocking to developers who are not used to it, or like anyone who's not used to it. And the whole mindset of people who work in the bureaucracy or in the administration is just so foreign to a lot of us who are like in business for you know the way the way private businesses and even public businesses businesses get run is really different because we have different kind of goals and objectives and metrics that make us successful and just the whole way that government gets run is is different and like the the one thing that I learned really early on is that most of the way that government is set up to work internally is to protect individual people from being accountable for their actions. <laughs> It, it's it, you, you, you know, that's the purpose of the bureaucracy is that people can sit down and do their job and not worry about having to like deal with you know somebody angry that they you know did something wrong in their particular job but that but then that's like expanded to be like nobody has to be accountable for anything in particular it's just the process that is accountable I think that's a really good point like accountability I think is a very big concern in government and I think it actually stems from a desire to be accountable right like it, it its origins are that we need to be accountable to the american people and we need to make sure that we're not breaking the law so we will have in government for example every organization every agency has an inspector general right that makes sure that it kind of is a watchdog 
on the whole organization. And then you'll have people in your organization who are, you know, who are the ones who are like sort of make, they know the details. Uh, you know, you'll kind of have a broad outline. I should do this. I shouldn't do that. But then if you're like in this new area, you'll go to, you know, like one of these people and you'll be like, okay, what should I do in this case? And they will tell you. And then sometimes people get into these habits where those people, like you have things that, like one of the things that the Innovation Fellows Program is doing is challenging some of the accepted practices, you know, because people will, you know, they they do some patterns and, you know, it'll be like, okay, people will say like, oh, that's a policy. And then the, you know, our administrative folks will go, okay, well, can you show us the policy? You know, can you show us the law that says we can't do this? And no, there's no law, it's a policy. Okay, can you show us the policy document? Oh, actually, there's no policy document. That's just the standard practice. Oh, is that written down anywhere? And then you just keep poking at it. And sometimes you do bump into like a law and then people go and they read the law and they're like, okay, well, actually, here's a way that we can accomplish the goal while still being within the law. And that's a little tiny innovation in process. Um, and sometimes it's just talking to people and being like, no, actually, we've done our homework. We talked to the legal folks and we can do this process without breaking the law. But that's what happens is you get these entrenched people patterns because you can't have software developers who also know all of the laws. Like we just have to have like kind of a separation of concerns there. And ultimately, you have to have people who have a background in legal who are reading the text of the laws and interpreting them. So because we need the separation concerns, you have these different roles, right? And so you'll have these people who are in various places in the hierarchy responsible for interpreting the law and the policies that are documented and we have to follow them. And then you have your manager, right, who tells you what to do. And then you'll have cross-agency initiatives where your manager's not the only one telling you what to do. And this gets fairly complicated because there are these different kind of rules and people that you have to pay attention to and do what they say. And that can kind of box you in to just, you know, okay, I'm going to just keep my head down and do what I've always done because, you know, then I can be the most productive. So, you know, from the outside, after it runs for many, many years, it gets really broken. And part of that, I think, is because it's not only a lack of accountability, there's also a lack of reward system for taking any risks. There's only a negative consequence to taking risk. There's no positive consequence to taking risk in government. And that's one of the things that, you know, I think the administration is really looking at and, you know, the Office of Management and Budget of like, how can we actually incent our government employees that, okay, if you stick your neck out and you really try to do the best thing for the American people, that, you know, there's some upside. So I had an interesting experience that, Sarah, I know you've heard about this because um, it was uh, mentioned in one of the talks at the first Gogoruko about doing open source voting. Mm-hmm. And I got to work on a little project at Pivotal related to that where we, we were building a prototype for some voter registration system that was being submitted to a, a government commission that was looking into like online voting technology, Pivotal Labs got involved in, in working with the um, Open Source Digital Voting Foundation and just knocked together a prototype that was actually like, very functional in what, in what it did. It was all like, cheating in the back, but the software sort of worked and showed the user experience of 
you know, how you would do an online voter registration system. And this came out of this meeting where a whole bunch of state secretaries of state were talking about this stuff with members of Congress. And, you know, they said, oh, you know, so here's just sort of the kind of proposal we want to see for building one of these systems. We want to get a, a ballpark estimate for how much it would take to build this. So Pivotal and OSDV went off and we spent like, you know, two months knocking together a prototype in like spare time that we had in the office. And, you know, for probably like a billable rate of, you know, $30,000 worth of work total. Mm-hmm. And, and like the big consulting companies came back and said, you know, like the Accentures of the world, you know, like one of those came back and said, Oh, here's our quote for a $500,000 six month study that we will take to build, you know, like put together the requirements for the prototype that we will build that will, you know, inform us as to how much the budget for the whole project would be. And the OSDV guys showed up and said, oh, here's the actual functioning thing that, you know, you can see how it works. And like, yeah, there's like tons of work to do to actually hook it up as a like scalable web app. But, you know, hey, we'll take a look. And, and the politicians in the room got like completely confused by what happened because mm-hmm. they're like, oh, this like very big reputable consulting organization just told us that it's going to cost us many millions of dollars to develop just the first part of this, like not even something that works and is deployable. And you're telling us that you could build this kind of stuff and you've already built it. And it's like, and they're like, why are you lying to us? It's like, we're not lying to you. (laughs) Here's the software. It works, right? Well, that's exactly the kind of shakeup that we're trying to create, right? That it's always challenging to define what does it mean to work, right? So if you're bidding on a government contract, Right. So you have to account for like meeting requirements, you know, and that whole RFP process where you have to figure out how much time it will take. Not like you're not billing by the hour, like, you know, in two months, we're going to have something that's demonstrable and we can put in front of users, but maybe doesn't have all the functionality they need. Like that's not that's never in an RFP. Right. And that's what some things we're trying to look at is like, can we change the way these RFPs are written and change the process so that we can start with something like, let's have users use a subset of the functionality before. But, you know, think about it. Like, if you're a lawmaker, are you going to authorize the government to say, okay, yeah, you can just hire somebody who won't guarantee you that it will support all your functionality and will just deliver a piece of software in two months that they can put in front of users? Right? Like, how do you word that? It's a tricky question, right? It's like, I I understand what you're saying. Like, we have to have these 10 things. And then it might be like, well, seven of those are something we can throw together in a weekend. (laughs) You know, or part of some subset of those is the blog you can build in 15 minutes, (laughs) right? Yeah, and then I think that it's also that, like, if you're, like, this is where these ridiculously long specs come from, because somebody's like, you know, you want to just say, okay, we've got these, you know, goals of like what we want citizens to be able to do, right? But if you know that during the time that you're building, you know, during those two months, you're not going to be left alone. You're going to be having to talk to 37 people who each work for a different department who will tell you what they think the citizens need. And then at the end of that, each of those 37 people have to approve your work in addition to the citizens being happy. Right. That's where we get the $500,000 price tag. Right. Because it's all of that overhead. And that's what we have to like sort of turn inside out. And one of the kind of exciting things is it's just announced this new group 
called 18F, which is inside of government having a small team that can deliver on just those prototypes. So you don't have to put it out to an RFP bid. You can just go to this internal government group and be like, okay, make me a prototype that does something like this so that I can evaluate how hard this thing is that I'm going to want to put out to RFP. Um, And I think that's pretty exciting. So how does that work with concepts like Agile, where we try to say, okay, it would be great if we could do these 10 million things, but the problem with that is, you know, you're talking years, and we want to do something faster, so what we need to do is trim this down to an MVP, pick the stories that are absolutely required, do that, then we'll talk, then pick the next set of stories. I mean, it seems like, like you say, if you have 37 people doing oversight on a particular project, how do you even handle something like a customer in an agile, quote, definition of the term? I mean, I think the key thing is getting all of those 37 people to buy into this user-centric design, right? That it's not their, that, well, listen to them, right? And, but they're not setting the requirements the citizens are. That we have some kind of goal where we're trying to say, okay, somebody can submit an application for a government job and it, within two weeks, we can know whether it's, whether they've gone on to the next phase and let them know that they haven't met the minimum requirements, right? As opposed to what usually happens where it's, you know, many, many, you know, it's maybe a couple months later and, you know, they're still going through the process. Like, so that's an example where you can think that a lot of people in government might have an opinion on that, but if you could turn it inside out and just say, no, our goal in developing the software is to meet some citizen need. And we can all, as government employees, inform that. But the only way we're going to ultimately know whether we met that citizen need is to usability to test it with a bunch of citizens. And everything else is just all of our opinions that, you know, are not requirements. They're opinions. And I think that's the way we turn it inside out, is we get everybody to agree that the need we're meeting is not a bunch of, you know, government, well-meaning government employees who are super experienced but that those, quote, requirements aren't actually requirements. They're ideas. Seems like this is an area where open government has some advantages. Like, if we make the data available and open to the citizens, then they'll use it in whatever ways they'll use it, and the marketplace will naturally filter what's valuable and not valuable on that, and then those projects become big and small. And it's the fact that that data got moved outside of the government process that allowed that to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so excited about the executive order from last year, which makes our data that's paid for by our federal tax dollars by default open. And this movement towards open data and open APIs means that, hey, you don't like how this and such government application works? great, like we can make an open source app that does that or some private industry can like make an app and, you know, I'll pay a premium to have like a great app that integrates a bunch of government open data because I'm fine with paying some private citizen a little bit extra in some cases, you know, for that service, you know, that we can just like open this up and like, you know, and give different agencies the opportunity to, you know, to, to work with each other's data. Like that's one of the things that is sort of, I wouldn't have guessed, but not surprising once I heard it is that open data within government has incredible accelerating effects on work within the agency that owns the data. That often we see situations, yeah, these data agencies, sometimes they have hundreds of thousands of people. 
And you may have the right to see the data that somebody in another department has, but you don't even, you know, when you want something, you know, government employees go to Google just like everybody else. And our intranet search systems inside government agencies, you know, are not as good as, you know, the public search systems that are available, you know, out in the world. So why why not leverage that stuff? Interesting idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, a lot of this stuff, like one of the things one of the fellows said when we were talking about, you know, some of the challenges of like you get into this government job and you're like, oh, my gosh, you know, something I could do in like a week or a few days at a startup, I can just tell it's going to take me a few a few weeks or a month and a half. And that's hard. But then at the same time, he said, you know, like, there's such a low bar. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, we don't have to, like, we, you know, like, just getting close to what we think is, you know, a great app is so much better than what you know, government employees and our citizens have to deal with when it comes to government services, that we can just, you know, make it something that we think is just, you know, the beginning of what we'd like to see is still far and above what people are used to seeing. And that's pretty exciting. Awesome. All right. Any other questions or should we do some picks? I just got like a a question about the day-to-day experience of being like a a fellow at the Smithsonian and like, where did you go to work? Did you like walk in through a giant uh, gallery full of prehistoric animals or just like, that's a great question. Yeah. I want to know. So my, I was working in the Capitol gallery, um, which is right off the Washington mall. So it is an office building. It's right near the department of ed and health and human services and the department of transportation and department of agriculture are all in this like sort of corridor, but it's right next to, it's also right next to air and space. It's three weeks, three blocks away from what they call the Smithsonian castle, which is right next to the African art museum and the Freer Sackler, which is Asian art. And then I walk a little bit across the mall to natural history, which is where all the dinosaurs are. And I, we did a project with the botany department, which is the natural history department division uh, museum. And so for a while I would have, you know, almost weekly meetings and I would always say, Oh, I'll come to your office. (laughs) And I love to, you know, like I ended up getting my badge so that I could go in the, you know, back offices and you could go look at the dinosaur bones that are like, you know, on shelves and stuff. Uh, and then American history is just fabulous. Um, and that's just, you know, like the next museum over from natural history. And then whenever I could, we would also have meetings at the castle, which was the very first Smithsonian building. It's the Smithsonian Institution building. And when the Smithsonian was founded, does anybody know the story of how the Smithsonian was founded? Do we have time? Go for it. So this guy, James Smithson, who was an Englishman, he left his estate to the United States of America. He had never visited the United States of America, of America, but he said if his heir had no kids, he wanted his whole estate to go to the United States of America to found the Smithsonian Institution to increase and diffuse knowledge amongst men. So that was his idea, and he left this in his will, and the British government sent it over to the American president, which I've got, who was the president in 1848. But uh, the president felt at the time that this was not within the executive powers to accept a bequest. And, and this was like the equivalent, it was like, I don't know, $40 million, which is like $400 million today. It was a lot of money. And, but he tossed it over to Congress. 
Congress debated it for six years. Like, I think we should build an art museum. No, we should build a natural history museum. What we should really do is build a telescope to look at the planets because we really need to understand our, you know, our universe. And it was debated back and forth. And finally, this congressman took every single proposal and put it together and said, we're going to do all of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Nice menu. Give me one of everything. <laughs> exactly. And then that guy sailed across the ocean to collect this money in gold and oh, sailed back to America. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he had the whole ship handcuffed to his wrist, right? Yeah, I mean, can you imagine? Like, that ship could have gone, like, down in a storm, and then, there, you know, we wouldn't have had a Smithsonian. Wow. Um, this stuff happened, right? So, I'm, so my next, I, for my ne- I'm taking notes for my next contract. I expect to collect my payment in gold. Yeah, you talk about identifying project risk factors. Right. <laughs> the funding could be lost at sea. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so they gave the Smithsonian some land on the mall, which was then like it was almost an island because what is now like a filled in road was a canal. And so it was just this kind of big field. And they built this, um, what's now the Smithsonian Institution building, and it had two wings, and one was for science, and one was for art, and they collected paintings, and they did science experiments. <laughs> and, um, and it was, you know, like, that was what they did. And then I was, I remember being in a meeting with the, um, Undersecretary of Art and Culture, Richard Curran, and he said, it was with Diego Meyer Cantu and Jason Shan, my fellow fellows, and he said, do you know that Abraham Lincoln, used to have meetings in this room with the Smithsonian secretary during the Civil War. And he would have, people would mail him letters about stuff that, things, ideas for how to win the war. And some of them were scientific in nature, and he didn't know how to evaluate them. So he would keep them in a stack, and then once a week he would walk down the mall and meet with the secretary and a few science advisors and then, you know, Abraham Lincoln would pull out these things and they would talk about them and they'd put them in the crazy idea pile or maybe this is a <laughs> good idea. And out of this, what they called the crazy idea committee, they actually, because this is also like the war was happening right there in Washington. Like you could go to the top of the Smithsonian building and like see the other side of the conflict. And what they ended up doing was flying one of the first hot air balloons, like hot air balloons were new back in the day over the Smithsonian Castle, and they had it tethered so that somebody would use a telegraph uh, machine from the balloon, and they would go to the land, and somebody would, like, listen to the taps from the telegraph machine, and they would say where the enemy troops were, and then somebody would etch it, and then they would make prints and send them all out. And (laughs) this was, you know, know, innovation in technology. This is like first-generation drones. Exactly. <laughs> but with people. Something like that. So it was just like everybody, every time you had a meet, have a meeting at the Smithsonian, it's almost like, like the, there's this oral history of, did you know what happened wow. in this place hundreds of years ago? Or did you, and you know, like at one point, like when we were first there, like there were these events that would happen, like when we were first there. Um, the whole network was slow because the, you know, the baby panda escaped from the zoo. And that was like a big, you know, the webcam was, you know, the big deal there. And so, you know, that's a big traffic moment. And we had another big um, traffic moment. We were going to actually have, you know, the press release go out about our fellowship. And then 
um, it was delayed because they discovered a new mammal. Like this happened, doesn't happen very often. Um, so that was pretty exciting. You know, you yeah. find out, learn these things. But so this sounds like an amazing opportunity. I mean, like, how did you get this opportunity? And like, can other people get this opportunity? Great question. Right this minute, you can go to whitehouse.gov slash innovation fellows and apply. So I heard Todd Park speak in December 2012. And before that, didn't think that you could say innovation and government in the same breath without being sarcastic. And he told all these great stories from what the round one fellows did. And he actually said at the end of his talk, if you have any ideas about innovation in government, email me. So I emailed him with my ideas about education government and ended up actually being on the phone with him and talking about it. And he said, you know, you should apply to this fellowship. And, you know, it took me a little bit to get over that, the fact that to even consider doing it. But the more I heard stories about change happening and the more I thought, this is something that really needs to happen. And it is our hope that this program will continue indefinitely. However, I think we have a unique opportunity with this administration that, you know, it's less about the, um, the politics of the administration, but more that Obama, President Obama is the first president that has really embraced technical solutions to problems. He is fairly savvy about using technology himself and also hiring technical leaders like, you know, like Todd Park and authorizing, you know, he's very, this is called the Presidential Innovation Fellows Program. President Obama thinks that this is a good way that we can do better with technology and government than what we're doing right now. And we certainly hope that this program will outlast this administration, but I think that there is a pretty big opportunity right now that may not come again. And we shouldn't take for granted that we can just apply next year. And so last year, that's how I felt. I was like, there's a round two. There may not be a round three. And if I want change to happen, maybe I just need to do it. Maybe I need to step up here. And it was a pretty big deal. I mean, you may remember I was CEO of Blazing Cloud, a mobile development company. Like being CEO of a company is not a small thing to just walk away from and figure out how you're going to get your team to operate without you. Luckily, I had an awesome COO, Stacia Carr, who stepped up and stepped into that role. I was CTO of a startup and I had, I told my partners, I am taking six months away from this. It's hard. It's a big deal in the life of a startup to put it on pause for six months. I mean, the site was running and so forth. And I got agreement that if we had any disasters, I would step in on a weekend and help out. But this is a very, very big dis- And I have a family in San Francisco. You know, So I spend a significant amount of time in DC away from my family. My husband said, okay, I'll support you in this. You know, he said, I think this is important for the country. So this is a, this is a non-trivial decision, but it is an important one. And if we don't have people like, you know, like the people on this phone call, like our listeners stepping into government, then, you know, we can't complain. You know, at a certain point, if you're not willing to help solve a problem, then you just should live with the shitty tech that somebody else makes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm inspired. <laughs> I, 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 I wish that this year didn't have a mind of its own for me. <laughs> if, if, I could, if, I could, if I could take some time to go do this, this sounds like this would be an awesome thing to do, at least not in the winter. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. 
Well, we are, um, you know, there is support for remote work. I think it is important. The DC is a very much face-to-face place. And, you know, and that's part of what we're trying to fix to make, to, you know, really, we embrace remote work and to get that, you know, with open source and open, and there's a lot of like data.gov is fabulous open source project. If anybody has any interest in participating in an open source project that, you know, is, you know, making our government better, data.gov, it's on GitHub. It was created from the beginning as an open source project. And I think that has helped with its resilience in, you know, really meeting the needs of, you know, of the open data community. And it's not done yet. There's a, there's a lot of improvements that need to be made. So even if you can't or, you know, aren't ready to make the decision to become an innovation fellow or you're early in your career, get involved with open source and open data. Thank you for letting me rant. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. I want to say, uh, when Sarah talks about the shelves in the Smithsonian, I don't think I had a good image in my head of that until I looked through her slides. Uh, so we'll put a link to the slides in the show notes, and in particular, go to, like, slide 28, where you can see this long, long stretch of shelves. It's quite impressive. Yeah, it was pretty special to be involved in that. And I think everybody had, I mean, there are, you know, the, the heritage and history of the Smithsonian is pretty unique, but I think in every agency, there's a heritage of, you know, that, you know, you just, you're in touch with these things that, you know, were these buildings and these, you know, institutions that were created in order to support our democracy. Like, it's, it's pretty awesome. All right. We've talked about this uh, for a while, and we should move on and do some picks. Abdi, what do you have for us this time? I don't have much this time. I, I did mention last time that I'd switched cell phone providers, and uh, as kind of part of that process, I decided to just buy myself a uh, new GSM phone so that it would be my phone rather than something that I got through the, the cell phone company. And wound up going with a, uh, a Moto X from Motorola. And I have to say, I think this is probably the perfect Android phone right now. It's, I switched to it from a, a Galaxy G, uh, S4, and uh, it's just, it's really good. It's, um, it's small. It's not like, I say phone because it is a phone. It's not a, a miniature tablet. It's rounded and feels good in the hand. It's got excellent battery life. It's got some cool stuff going on with how it leverages Google voice control. So you can pretty much just talk to it and tell it to do things without even picking it up. And yeah, it's just a really like well-balanced phone-sized phone, Moto X. So I think that's really about it for me. Josh? Let's see. I, I've been, uh, I've been kind of distracted by working lately. So <laughs> I don't have to, I don't have picks except, uh, I'm going to pick the Ruby Hero Awards because that season. And I, I think people should go and nominate people who they think deserve some recognition for their awesome contributions to the world of Ruby. Yeah. So that is my pick. And that's it for me this week. Okay, so I've been reading this cool series of articles, I guess you would call it. It's just kind of one article that's growing on Martin Fowler's blog uh, called Microservices. Uh, and it's uh, kind of a more modern term than SOA, I guess you would describe it as. Uh, and it's just kind of uh, Martin and James Lewis, who are like co-authors on this, are breaking down what they are, how big are they, you know, what are they designed around. I found it all very fascinating reading. It's been a little bit controversial on Twitter. I've seen some tweets about, you know, attacking certain parts of it as being misrepresentative of what SOA are and is and stuff like that. And, uh, but I, I've really enjoyed it. So I would encourage you to check it out. Maybe we'll get Martin back on to talk about it at some point. And that's my only pick this time. So Sarah, what do you have? 
I have a few picks. If after people listen to Ruby Rogues, if they're still want to listen to more podcasts, I started um, in late December a podcast with my with uh, the fellow Jason Shen that I collaborated with at the Smithsonian called Tectonic Podcast. So we talk about innovation in business, software, and life following our innovation fellowship to kind of keep that fellowship going while he's in New York and I'm in San Francisco. Also, uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about that I want to mention, which has a great set of videos, is we did a, a great hackathon, the first ever Smithsonian hackathon where people wrote code for the American Art Museum. So at americanart.si.edu slash loose, L-U-C-E slash hack are the outcome of what a group of citizens did with some experimental open data APIs that the Smithsonian had. And, um, and I think that's a sort of neat example of um, what we can do when we can get government citizens together. And then lastly, on the technical side, this may have been mentioned before on Ruby Robes, but I've been really been enjoying Screen Hero for remote pairing. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sarah, for coming and talking to us. It was very interesting. Well, I really appreciated the conversation. I learned some stuff. I, I have I have one last question, and that's uh, your opportunity for shameless self-promotion. Are you speaking or appearing anywhere in the near future? No, nothing that's been scheduled. Okay, so we'll, we'll just keep our ears open then. All right. <laughs> okay, thanks again. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We will see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 A special thanks to HoneyBadger.io for sponsoring Ruby Rose. They do exception monitoring, uptime, and performance metrics, and are an active part of the Ruby community. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlor.